0: Hi everyone, and welcome to Happy Paws, presented by FearFreeHappyHomes.com. Happy Happy Paws is a podcast by pet lovers, for pet lovers. We take a scientific and evidence-backed approach to helping you understand your pet on a deeper level. On this episode, we're excited to be joined by Dr. Chris Pockel, veterinarian and board-certified animal behaviorist. He joins us to discuss barking. What are our dogs trying to tell us? What are the different types of barking, and what do they mean? And finally, Dr. Pockle will give you some tips on how to address problem barking with your dog.
1: Dr. Pockle, so excited to have you here today. We are talking all about dogs barking and how they are communicating through their barks as well as ways that we can address some problem barking and hopefully have a little bit more quiet in our home. So are you ready to dive in?
2: I am so ready to dive in and thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having me on. This is going to be a fun conversation. I'm sure of it.
1: Well, I have been a big fan of yours for so many years. You are uh, an excellent veterinary behaviorist and well-connected in the training world and just a great educator. I love that you educate in a way that makes things relatable and fun and doable. So I know that you're going to be the perfect person to talk to us all about barking.
2: Well, thank you all for that. And I, th- I think the piece that I, I latch onto the most there is connected within the training world. When mm-hmm. I started out in this profession, that wasn't necessarily the model that existed. We all kind of operated in our own silos and, and there wasn't as much cross communication, uh, learning from one another as, as I think we're really leaning into now. And I couldn't be more thrilled about the possibility of learning from folks. And, and, and hopefully, hopefully, I have the opportunity to teach just as much as I learn.
1: Oh, I, I love that. Well, so talking about dogs talking through their barks, what is the purpose of a bark? And is this something that their wolf ancestors did? Is this something that's developed over time? I'd love to hear your thoughts.
2: Oh my gosh. So even diving in at this level. So yes, so we know that canids vocalize, right? And and those could be barks, they could be whines, they could be other vocalizations as well. and And they are specific, right? It is a form of communication. And I think sometimes we lose sight of that just because we don't always understand exactly what's being said. And we might think of it even in terms like nuisance barking or excessive barking. And I have to remind myself sometimes to say, gosh, I I wonder what's so important to this animal that they keep trying to send this message over and over and over again. So it's, yeah, it's absolutely something that exists. Now, with that being said, you mentioned the correlation or at least the connection back to wolves and wild canids. And we do know that domestic dogs do bark and vocalize more than their wild counterparts. It's definitely something that we see through that process of domestication and even that that term neotenization or neoteny. Or the retention of juvenile characteristics into adulthood means that we've carried with us as we've bred various breeds and as we've domesticated dogs, we've carried a lot of that that, that, that vocalization with us. And well, in some breeds, we've really exaggerated it. <laughs>
1: yes, yes. So, so barking itself, uh, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on this too. Is so I remember hearing that barking is like like that wolf pups, for instance, will make a sound like a bark, but it's not something that you would hear like in an adult wolf, for instance. So as you were saying, like the neonization or like the retain, the retention of those baby-like traits, that's one of those baby-like traits probably that a dog has retained as they've been domesticated and, and uh, retained into adulthood. So it's not something they only show in puppyhood like a wolf would.
2: Exactly, exactly. And that's not to say that adult wolf, wolves would never vocalize, but the frequency and, you know, the the intensity of it is great, greatly uh, e- exaggerated within our domestic dogs. So it's definitely something we see. And, and I'm always reminded to when I'm teaching my veterinary students, you know, the different forms of communication and, and why a dog might choose one versus another, right? And so one of the values of uh, a vocal communication is that it it carries across distance, right? It, it gives those dogs the ability to communicate with the recipient, whoever they're targeting that vocalization at, gives them the ability to communicate in some cases across great distances. And yet that vocalization is in the moment. So they can change the message, you know, in in the blink of an eye, if the message needs to change, which is different from things like Uh, urine marking for example where yeah that communicates across distance through scent but you can't really change it once you've put it out there in the world so uh, vocalizations have a very specific function for dogs in in that regard it's kind of fun to to see how they choose to use that
1: yeah that's a really good way to put it and I've never really thought of it that way that's yeah, very interesting. So, when you talk about dogs communicating a message and changing their message, can you give some examples of of how that vocalization may sound different from one type of vocalization to the other, and what what changes you may be listening for?
2: Absolutely, and I I can do you one better. I can give you some examples, right? We can. Actually yes, I like, love we, that. This is what I do with some of my clients, right? So, if I were a dog, mm-hmm. and if I vocalize something more along the lines of. Boof, and it's deeper and more percussive and isolated, that means something very different from the where we're getting that that almost staccato, fast, repetitive, high-pitched vocalization. And something that we want to remember while we're thinking about those examples is that it's not just the vocalization, right? If I'm thinking about dog number one, I would anticipate or predict perhaps that that dog is probably a bit stiff, may have a bit of a wider eye, that tail may be elevated up and over the horizontal. And there's probably a very specific point of focus where that dog is alerting and we're getting those single percussive threat barks, for example versus that second dog where we're getting that higher pitch, staccato, rapid, almost repetitive, redundant vocalization, that we tend to see during periods of excitement or big feelings, high emotional arousal. And that might be associated with a dog who's jumping all over the place or running back and forth, maybe along a fence line or racing toward the front door because the doorbell just rang. So they mean something very different in those different contexts. And I'm reminded of the days when I used to be a house call veterinarian, and there were times where I would knock or ring the front doorbell, and the client would reach for the door on the inside, and I would grab the door on the outside and say, nope, that door is not going to get open quite yet. Your dog is giving me a very different message from what you're giving me. You want me inside. Your dog absolutely does not we need to resolve that conflict before I step in and potentially violate their space and potentially end up injured in the process.
1: So when you hear that type of bark, what would what would that bark be like? Would that be more of the lower pitch type of bark or what, what would you hear that would be that warning for you?
2: So yeah, so if I'm standing outside of a front door, and I hear a a tone of voice that causes me concern, I'm gonna be much more concerned about that lower pitched percussive bark personally, especially if I've got a history where this is a dog who's particularly concerned about strangers or people entering the property. The second dog, that higher pitched uh, high arousal bark That could go either way, right? That could be a dog who's really excited and exuberant and, you know, they've got a lot to say, but there may not be any significant threat behind it. Now, keeping in mind, the more arousal starts to climb, the faster things can go sideways in a heartbeat if we interact with them inappropriately or if they perceive a threat. But I'm less concerned about that higher pitched bark right from the get go.
1: So I've heard it said that like a lower pitch oftentimes is more of like that warning or that go away. So go further away and the higher pitch, not always, but in general, it may mean come closer. Have you found that to be true?
2: I would say I would agree more on the front side of that, kind of more Mm -hmm. the go away, that tends to be more consistent. And it also highlights something within, you know, as we are talking about the difference between wild canids versus domestic dogs. One of the other things that's changed in that domestication process is that we're more likely to see or hear, I should say, non-specific barking, especially a lot of that high arousal, higher pitched, repetitive vocalizations. We see and hear more of that in our domestic dogs simply, as best we can tell, because they're excited. So it may have less of a specific meaning or communication, and yet those Threat vocalizations, those seem to be a lot more specific, especially when they're associated with those body language cues that we mentioned.
1: Yes, definitely. And I can picture both types of dogs. And as you said, it's like, the, the dog, like the lower threat vocalization. And sometimes as you, and I'd love for you to expand upon that a little bit more. So you talked about how sometimes that, that really high pitch, it's, it just means excitement and it could be that really happy, excited, uh, excited, happy, friendly dog, or it could be a dog that's maybe highly aroused. And you mentioned that that could go more quickly, quickly to the other side. Can you expand upon that?
2: Yeah. So arousal is sort of one of those interesting topics where it basically is a, even a, a measure of the activation level of the animal, in this case, talking about a dog. So it's sort of a way of thinking about the, the heart rate and the respiratory rate and you know, and just how much adrenaline may be flowing through those veins and, and coursing through that body. And so arousal has a very specific function. It fuels that readiness to react so that if something happens, that animal's body and, and their brain is primed to respond more quickly versus if they were in more of a sleepy, sedentary, low arousal state, it would take more recruitment to get to that point where they may be able to respond quickly. So anytime I'm working with a dog who's operating at a high level of arousal, whether that's in performance or whether that's excitement or whether they may be even experiencing fear, anxiety, or stress, the moment arousal starts to creep in, Things can get a lot um, dicier if we have a miscommunication between myself and that dog or that dog and whoever else they're interacting with because of that arousal. The readiness to react is so much sharper and so much faster than if we were more relaxed and comfortable. And that's actually one of the reasons when we, not to go too far off topic, but when we focus on teaching relaxation And trying to create moments where those dogs are, are soft and loose and comfortable. It's not just the emotional piece that we're aiming for. We're also trying to shift them away from that threshold, partially from a safety standpoint, as well as emotional comfort.
1: So when you think of barking and people's response to that barking, and you're talking about the emotional state of the dog and, you know, whether you are potentially even inadvertently further fueling that, that adrenaline or those underlying stress hormones in their body. And they're getting even more alert and agitated, excited, or if you are doing the opposite you're helping them to calm down and relax. And I definitely think that, you know, one common reaction is when a dog starts barking, someone could start yelling at the dog or, to, you know, yell at them, but, you know, be quiet, like, and to me, it's like when I see that, it's like the dog, a lot of times it's almost like, oh, my God, they're joining in. They're barking along. And it's just even more exciting and agitating. But what like, what are some problem reactions that people have to their dog's barking that you've seen? And how does that potentially make the problem worse?
2: Yeah, I, I love this question because, it's, you know, whenever we're thinking about a particular behavior, in this case, thinking about barking, that's, well, it's the B of the A, B, C. Right, So that's the behavior. And that behavior happens under certain conditions, or in the behavior world, we call those antecedents, as you know. So we're thinking about what are the conditions under which that barking happens? And then what are the consequences? And that w- sometimes when I think about consequences, my brain goes to corrections. What, what's the punishment for that behavior? But consequence really just means, and what happens next? So when the barking or the behavior occurs, what happens next and does that fuel that through some form of reinforcement? Does it suppress it through some form of punishment? And again, we can we can talk about that if we get into it. But really thinking about what can we manipulate? The barking is the animal's choice in that moment. We can change the antecedents. We can change the consequences and by both of those methods we can give that animal some feedback. Now, I'm thinking about that in really general terms for a second because before I dive into the specifics, I want people to have an understanding of that. It's not just tell the dog how wrong they are or bark along with them. I really wanna think about the way that that dog is learning. And so if I think about the antecedents, for example, then I'm thinking about, let's say we've got a dog that when the kids start playing and roughhousing in the room, that's the trigger for the dog to start barking. Well, in that case, the antecedent may be that chaos, the wrestling, the movement, the noises It kind of fuels all of this, well, chaos that may have that dog chiming in. So if I'm trying to control that dog or trying to teach that dog to respond differently, I may need to actually control the chaos a little bit, even through the training process, rather than just adding some sort of a consequence to that or trying to tell the dog no or stop that. The other thing to think about on the consequence side of things is if we go down that that pathway and are trying to say, hey, what what could we do to teach that dog a different way of responding to that particular situation? Most of us, me included, our brains jump to punishment. Because it makes sense, right? The dog is doing something and I want them to stop. So how do you stop a behavior? You jump in, you tell them no, you clap your hands, you you do any number of things to teach them no and stop that. The challenge with that, I think it, it often gets overlooked by a lot of pet owners who maybe perhaps haven't thought through this all the way yet is that if we have a dog who's behaving in a certain way because that's what their body or their brain is telling them to do, simply telling them stop that doesn't actually teach them what we wanted them to do in the first place. So rather than let's say the kids are wrestling in the room and the dog is barking and we're yelling at the dog to stop barking, I'd rather set up a game with the kids to say, okay guys, you're gonna wrestle just a little bit, just a little baby wrestle for just two seconds And the moment the dog starts to chime in, we're gonna call the dog over and we're gonna ask him to lay down in his bed and we're gonna give him three cookies in a row as fast as we can. You guys ready? Let's go. And so now we're actually teaching the dog when the kids wrestle, you can get paid with cookies by laying on your bed rather than barking and jumping around and maybe grabbing at pant legs or doing other things that may get you in trouble. So by going down the reinforcement pathway, we have the opportunity to actively teach in a way that really sets everybody up to be more successful in the long run.
1: Absolutely. And you're changing the dog's basic underlying emotion, their feelings in that situation, I would imagine as well.
2: We absolutely are. And that I think that's another thing we're hitting on so many good things that I think it sometimes get overlooked is that if we just focus on barking, is the dog barking yes or no? And that's the measure of success. That's only part of the picture. Yes, in that case, if, if barking is something that we need to reduce, yeah, that's absolutely a measure of success, but that's not the only measure of success. And I want that dog even to be comfortable and not worried about what might happen. And even thinking about the way that the brain functions, if we're going down a reinforcement pathway and we have a dog who's striving to get. Earn reinforcement, it activates different neural pathways and neural circuits than the dog who is suppressing or is shying away from certain situations to avoid a negative outcome. So it's not just about the measure of is the dog barking yes or no, it's actually truly peeling back those layers, what's actually being processed in which way within that animal's brain, and it does matter.
1: I love that training too, where you are turning that antecedent or, or that situation that prompts the barking in the first place or, or gets the dog, you know, agitated or excited and causes the barking. You are taking that situation and you are actually turning that into the cue to go lie down on their bed. So rather than saying bed or place, like eventually I'm guessing you're, as you were saying, like the whole cue to go to the bed is kids wrestling.
2: Absolutely. And it's so fun when you actually work through the steps to make that happen when you see that little light bulb go off in the dog's eyes, and I know that you know exactly Mm, what I'm talking about. Yes, I do, I love that. You see that moment and then you kind of just pause for a second and you wait for the dog to make that right choice and then we can celebrate that choice. Oh gosh, it's just so much fun to see that come alive in front of you.
1: So when it comes to barking, do you categorize barking into separate categories? And depending upon what type of barking, do you address it differently?
2: Yeah, it's a great question because it really does matter. And some of that taps into what we were just talking about with antecedents, for example. So I'll give you two or three different examples here. If I have a dog who is left alone and they're distressed by that isolation, by being separated from their caregiver, you know, separated from their person or the other dog in the household, and they're barking under those circumstances because of that isolation distress or separation anxiety or whatever label we choose to put on it, I'm going to address that very differently from a dog who, let's say the family sits down to dinner and we didn't get the dog out for a walk today and uh, we'll get to the dog in just a little bit. We'll feed him after we're done eating and we're sitting down to dinner and I've got a dog who is dropped into a bow, who is bouncing forward and back and basically ricocheting from one family member to the next while, while yelling at them. That's a very different emotional state, right? That's a dog whose needs aren't being met. A dog who may be barking either because they've got all this pent up energy that needs to go somewhere or and there may be a history of reinforcement for that where people have responded in some way, either by giving the dog food, by giving the dog attention, or even trying to redirect the dog in some way. So we've accidentally created or exacerbated some of those patterns, and the dog figures out, ooh, you're sitting down at the dinner table, it's time to play the barking game, let's do it! Right. Very different from that dog with separation anxiety in terms of our understanding of why it's happening and what it's going to take to truly address that.
1: So in those cases of something like separation anxiety, do you think of barking as just a symptom
2: of sorts? More so. Yeah. And, and that's a really good reason, too, especially if we have people saying, well, could could I use a bark collar, for example, or could I use an ultrasonic device? to try to punish the dog for barking in that circumstance. If barking is a symptom of stress or anxiety, and if I use a bark device to quiet the symptom, I haven't actually helped that dog. And that's a really important thing for us to remember is that if that animal needs help, we have to help the dog. Right? We, and and I guess I, I say we have to help the dog. Everybody might not agree with me, but I think we should, right? I think it's our obligation as their caregiver to say, no, 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 I I see you struggling. I'm going to do what I can to avoid leaving you alone. I'm going to do what I can to teach you how to be comfortable when you're alone versus just trying to quiet the symptoms.
1: So what is, a? Uh, uh, are there other types of barking that you see? So we've talked about separation barking, perhaps some of that attention or excitement barking. What are some other common types of barking?
2: Yeah, so we've sort of touched on a couple of the other ones in passing a little bit. One might be a threat display, kind of a distance increasing bark where that vocalization is a way of the dog saying, saying, get away. I'm going to be a whole lot happier when there's more real estate between you and me. In other cases, we may see it as part of a predatory sequence. And what I mean by that is if we're thinking about a lot of the hunters who are quiet hunters, it would be silly for them to vocalize. And yet, if you've ever heard a beagle or a hound dog baying through the woods when they're hot on the scent of something out there in the woods, that is a part of their trailing and sort of alerting everyone around. We've got one. It's going that direction. Recruit, recruit, recruit! Let's go. It's a different function, right? And it sounds different. And and we also see some of the breed-related traits that may show up in different ways with some of those vocalizations too.
1: I one type of barking that, and it's not necessarily even barking. It's more like a like really excited, almost scream. And my my pug. Bruce, for instance, used to be that when I would throw the tennis ball, it was so funny. People would just like look over from way on the other side of the park where it's like there's this screaming dog running after the tennis ball. And you mentioned like the predatory sequence. And, and you know, for him, I, I mean, definitely it's like, you know, play for us. You know, we think of it as play, but it, it is. It's that practice. It's that expression of part of that that predatory behavior that's innate to them, but what would something like that be? Like a, a dog that screams or does that really high pitch before they get that that ball, for instance.
2: Yeah, it's. I, I always, I always want to, I always want to see videos when I with these cases because it it could be a couple different things, right? So I, I think about it as maybe this is a dog who is so thrilled by the opportunity to chase this ball that this, this enthusiasm is literally bursting at the seams mm-hmm. and is coming out as kind of this non-specific, ah, I'm so yeah. excited about this thing and it's got to come out of my body in some way, shape or form. So it could be that. I also see some dogs in situations like that where it's it's a behavior that they may have done it one or once or twice, and it got more attention. It earned them more of a response from their people. And so it almost became like a, like a superstitious, re- just a repeated part of the, well, this is how we play this game, apparently. You throw the ball, I scream, I chase it, I get it, repeat, 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 repeat. And there may be a reinforcement element to that pattern as well. Sometimes we can tell the difference in body language and sometimes we can't. And that's you know, something I always have to remind myself too, is that when, even when we look at some of these categories, whether it's that threat bark or the high-pitched excitement or the distressed vocalization, we can make some, some guesses or some hypotheses about what we think is going on, but we don't always know. And so I'm always looking, you know in, in any of these situations, I'm listening to hear what, that, what, what sounds that animal is making, but then I'm also looking at the body language. Because if they're excited, if that's the reason they're doing it, I'm probably gonna see signs of that excitement somewhere else in their body language as well. If they're distressed, I'm probably going to see elements of that distress somewhere else in their body language as well. And that allows me to be a bit more confident in my interpretation of what they're doing because I've got multiple data points that are all aiming in the same direction.
1: That definitely makes sense. So a couple types of barking that I want to throw at you and get your your thoughts on. So the dog that just runs out in the yard and they start barking at the fence line at the neighbors, or they are more focused on barking, it seems, than doing their business out in the lawn. Like in that situation, what is going on and what would be just some general tips on how to deal with that?
2: Great, great. I love that we're getting into some of the practical solutions here too. This is going to be Yes. Fun. Uh, so for those dogs who kind of preemptively announce themselves to the world mm-hmm. or charge the fence line, oftentimes those are dogs, again, I'm, I don't want to go too far down this like assumption of what's going on, but mm-hmm. oftentimes I find that those dogs are either experiencing a level of fear, anxiety, and stress, and there's a level of worry about is is there something out there that I need to chase away, or, and in some cases they've been successful with that in the past that there was something out there whether it was a squirrel whether it was a mail carrier going past that past the the home whether it was a car going by on the opposite side of the fence something was there the dog reacted the thing went away reinforcement happened and we get better and better and faster to employ that strategy the next time around. And so we get this reinforcement pattern that starts to happen. And those two can actually go together where we have some fear, anxiety, and stress and reinforcement happening. But it's often something that develops not just as a single event, but it happens because of repetitive learning. And that's an important thing to remember because when I'm talking with pet owners about, well, what do you do about it? When you've got that dog where you open the back door and they charge out screaming at the world, even if there's nothing there, that's not something that happened overnight. We're probably not going to fix it overnight either. And, right, it, it, it takes time. Now, I mean, we may be able to fix it quickly, but it's not a matter of just saying, well, what do I do now? It's been going on for 18 months, but now I want it gone by Tuesday uh maybe maybe not right but what can we do in those situations the first thing that i tend to really stress to my clients is that number one i don't want your dog to have the opportunity to practice that behavior now managing or avoiding the situation does almost nothing to fix the issue But it sets us up so that every little tiny bit of training we do, it's more likely to take hold and change those behaviors versus if you are doing some training, but you're not managing the dog, it's going to get it's going to be really challenging to get any significant headway in our training plan. So management is important. And so I'll talk with my clients about saying, okay, maybe we want to make sure that we're poking our head out first and make sure that there's nobody out there before we open the door. We might even put the dog on leash and step out the door with them, assuming that that changes or reduces the barking. We might make sure the coast is clear before we let them off leash. Or we may even decide, guess what? Unless unless the coast is clear, I'm going to take you outside on leash and I'm going to keep you on leash until you've relaxed a bit and you're less likely to be charging the fence line. And then I may reward you with that freedom. So I'm setting everybody up to be successful. I'm not gonna be as annoyed as the pet owner because my dog isn't yelling at the world. The dog is less upset because they're simply just not going through the motions. And then we can practice, let's say, going out into the yard. And one example might be we go outside and we've pre-scattered a couple little kibbles in the grass for them to, to sniff through. So I've changed that expectation of door open now predicts, well, nature's snuffle mat out in the yard and they're going to go out and snuffle. And then we go back inside. I step out, put some food out, step back in, open the door, dog comes out, snuffle mat. And we repeat that. And I'm now changing the dog's expectation where they're able to exit the house immediately nose to ground rather than voice to the world or charging the fence line. And again, what we're coming back to is what do I want you to do in this situation rather than Stop that.
1: Yes. Really, really great thoughts there. So, so, and I, I know there may be some similarity in this question too, but for the dog that is just the patroller of the home, so they are barking at any odd sound that they may hear and whether it's like a siren or maybe someone passing by and there's talking or and you know this may heighten especially when there's something like a, a the doorbell rings or a package is delivered and like how do we I know that that's kind of a multifaceted question but how do we address this situation with a dog that that is just very talkative about their feelings and and it feels, To that person, like, it's just they're constantly battling their dogs barking.
2: Yeah. One of my questions to the owner in that case is, ultimately, what do you want the outcome to look like? And the reason I start there is that I work with clients where some of them are really, really annoyed by any vocalization. Others actually like it a little bit, where they actually want to know that, gosh, there's something happening in my neighborhood, there's someone at my door, I would love to be alerted to that, but I also want my dog to stop after three barks or five barks or you know 12 seconds or whatever the measure is. So the reason I start there is that I'm trying to figure out what am I aiming for? Do I truly want to be able to teach the dog when you hear a knock at the door, do this? Or am I actually training a sequence that means knock at the door, Charge the door, bark, 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 and then I'll call you off and then reinforce quiet at that point. They're very different outcomes. And I want to make sure that if I'm going to be guiding that from a training standpoint, I'm headed toward the outcome that that particular owner is going to see as a success rather than some arbitrary definition of success that I think is appropriate because that's how I would do it in my household.
1: I, I really like that. I know that for me, for instance, I definitely like that my dogs will alert me to something strange. And actually, this literally just happened last week where our little rescue dog—I say little—she's you know around sixty pounds. Our rescue dog Nova, <laughs> um, you know, it was she is the type of dog she rarely ever barks and. I let the dogs out at night, you know, just right out the slider door. And all of a sudden, she had her big girl bark where, and it's like very rare I've ever even heard this. And at the time, there were, you know, there were a couple of hushed voices that I could hear. And as soon as that happened, like those voices quieted down. And I was like, "Ooh, that's weird. Like, it was just very strange. It was right on the side of the fence. And normally she doesn't bark at people talking and called the dogs in. And literally 30 seconds later, there were like six to seven gunshots. And I like hit the deck, you know, one of those things and I calling 911 and our neighbors were calling 911. And I don't know for sure that it was related to that, but I have a pretty good feeling that it was. And, you know, in that situation, I'm like, God, thank God for that. You know, and that alerted me like, Hey, I need to go back in, call my dogs in. Like, I was so grateful for her to have that bark. And I think sometimes we forget, The purpose of a dog's barking and the value of that. So I love how you put that on. You know, being able to manage owners' expectations and ensuring that you both have the same idea of like what success might look like.
2: Yeah, and it's so important, especially you know, if I'm going to give a client homework, you know that they they're going to have to do at least some of the work, right? I can't just show up and have a conversation with the dog and expect that their behavior is going to change they're going to have to do the homework. And if they feel like they're aiming towards some arbitrary goal that doesn't match up with theirs, number one, they're not going to do the work. And truthfully, they're not going to be very happy about the service that I provided for them either. So for all of those reasons, especially being able to address the actual concern there, I want to make sure that we're aiming in the same direction.
1: So for that dog that is giving a lot of feedback throughout the day like of any sounds or anything like that 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 are going on or anything different out of their their ordinary whatever that that may mean for that dog do you a lot of times look at things like is that dog experiencing some type of fear anxiety and stress are they maybe not getting enough enrichment or exercise like do you look at certain factors to to figure out kind of the best game plan going forward for that dog
2: I do. And I think you mentioned a couple of the big ones right off the bat there, which is fantastic. You know, and, I, and what I want to stress is that, you know, for most behavior problems, a lack of exercise is not the cause. I say most behavior problems. There are definitely some things that could be happening where the dog is tearing apart your couch, for example, could be caused because, the well, the dog isn't getting enough exercise. But in most cases, a lack of exercise doesn't cause those issues but a lack of exercise often makes it much more challenging to address whatever the primary cause is because we've got a dog whose needs are just not being met. So everything gets harder as a result of it. So we're definitely screening for those things. And yet there's no, there's no perfect answer. So the client who says, okay, so I'm not sure if I'm giving my dog enough park time or you know, am I walking long enough? Are we running enough? What's the magic amount of exercise I'm going to tell them very flat out. I don't know. But let's start with what you're doing. Get a baseline. Try a couple of days of giving your dog more exercise. Did the problem or the other, did the observations get better? Did they get worse? Did they stay exactly the same? Well, now let's go light on the exercise for a couple of days. Now, how about now? Did things get worse? Did they get better? Did they stay exactly the same? And usually within a couple of days' time, we can get a pretty good sense of how much of an impact exercise, or at least that type of exercise, is having on that target behavior of, in this case, barking or excessive vocalization. So sometimes it matters a lot. Sometimes it hardly matters at all. I have to ask the dog, and we've got to look at some data before we know which pattern we fall into.
1: So what about the dog that all of a sudden becomes really boisterous when it's time for a Zoom call or when it's time for just a phone call and all of a sudden the dog is just in this like uproar and I I see that a lot. What do you do in that situation?
2: Number one, you do what I did and you put your dog in the other room before you hop on a podcast (laughs) interview with Mikkel Becker, but uh, no, (laughs) no. The reality is it, it, exactly right, and I made the mistake the other day. I forgot that he was in the other room. I was recording a podcast with a with a with a with a, a colleague, and about four minutes into the recording, all of a sudden I hear dick, 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 and here he comes. I was like, oh my god! So I was simultaneously recording and trying to manage my bull terrier at the same time, and oh, I hope the recording went well. Anyways. So part of it is management, right? So if I know that I have a dog who is going to do that, I can preempt that. I can make sure that we got out for our walk first. I I've put him somewhere else, not just, you know, lock him up in his kennel, but he's downstairs. Uh, he had a you know stuffed Kong to keep him busy. He's snoozing on the couch right now. He's good while I'm doing this. But I think one of the times that that really happens is that when we look at behaviors, especially accidentally rewarded behaviors, What I'm trying to tease out when I'm talking with those clients is what was your dog's takeaway? Why would the Zoom call be significant? And it it can be a couple of different things. In some cases, that may be a signal to your dog that your attention is shifting away from them because you've been playing with them all morning. And so Zoom call or phone call or whatever that signal is means a loss of attention and they may be acting out or acting in a way to try to get some of that attention back. So that may be part of it, right? We've changed the expectations and didn't actually clue them in on what that meant. In other cases, what happens is I may have a claim who says, well, no, no, no. she was She was snoozing in the chair all morning long until I hopped on the Zoom call. And that's when she came to life and came over and started to pester me. In those cases, what I find is that it's usually a scenario where those Zoom calls are probably not casual happy hour conversations. They're probably work calls or something where the owner or the person needs to focus. And so what that means is that if, if the owner was just kind of hanging out on their computer and the dog came up and pestered them, they may or may not get a reaction. But if mom or dad are on a work call and they don't want to be disturbed, they respond to me every single time because they're trying to shush and push and try to make this problem go away. And so it becomes a reliable predictor that 100% of the time attention is going to be available if I pester them once the laptop gets opened or the Zoom call gets started. And so we basically got a dog who's playing the lottery certain triggers have a 50% payout. Ooh, but that Zoom call, that one's 100%. I know exactly what to do and they do it.
1: So in that situation, would you do something similar to, so say that you have that dog that is, you know, they're totally chill. As soon as you get on the Zoom call, you know, the the barking might start. In that situation, would you, would you do you practice Zoom calls Potentially, and make that the cue to do some type of calm, quiet behavior.
2: It's exactly what I would do. I would start out by making sure that that dog has a cue for go settle on your mat or go to bed or whatever that is. And, and it's a comfortable cue, something they enjoy doing, not a coerced or enforced place. You must stay here, but hey, run over to your bed and I'm going to toss you a cookie every seven seconds. You know, something along those lines to start. If I've got that behavior, then just like we did with things like the kids wrestling or the sound of the doorbell, let's turn that trigger into the cue. So when I open up my laptop and I say, hey, boss, how are things going today? Go to your bed. Who's my good doggy? And I'm able to then reinforce that behavior. My boss isn't on the call, but my dog doesn't need to know that. If there's some other audio cue, that's fine. I can grab my cell phone. I can start a Zoom call with myself, right? It doesn't, it doesn't matter. I can set that up in a way that replicates that real world and just for a, a, you know an easy version of it. Three seconds, ten seconds, twenty seconds, and then we say, thanks for playing, all done. Okay, and then we release the dog from the bed. So we're starting out with something easy. We practice. We make sure that we've got some fluency and some repetition. Eventually, once the dog is able to do that for a long enough duration with those intermittent food reinforcements or whatever we're using to to provide that praise and attention and reinforcement, then I may choose to have them with me in the room when I need to actually pop on a work call. But until then, I'm going to go back to strategy number one. We went for a walk. I'm going to put you elsewhere and I'm not going to need to deal with you because I don't want you getting practice doing it wrong.
1: So what about in the situation of dogs playing with other dogs? So what I'm thinking of, so two scenarios here would be the dog that's really boisterous in play. They, They get excited. They're happy. It's this mutual play and they're showing good play behavior, but they just talk a lot, which can sometimes feel upsetting or embarrassing for the pet parent. So that situation, as well as the dog that uh, I think of my parents' dog, Cutie Pie, for instance, we call him the fun police, where if the dogs are roughhousing too much, he starts to do this certain type of barking where it's like, hey, you guys, you you better better quiet down. And if they don't, you know, he's, he's going to go in there. He's going to separate them. Can you talk about why that barking might be happening in those situations and what you could do about it, if anything.
2: Yeah. So on um, the first example where we have, as I love the way you describe this, appropriate play, the dogs are getting along with one another. There's not a conflict. But I would presume or at least predict that the energy level of that play is probably pretty high if we're getting that level of barking, at least more often than not. So two things immediately come to mind. One, I might practice calling those dogs in and out of play. So I might send them off to play, but maybe just for 15 or 20 seconds or so, especially if the play is something that they ramp into. So I may create short little segments of play and then call the dogs over excitedly, ask them to come over to me, offer a sit, for example, maybe a down if they're really good at that, something they can perform. Maybe we do one or two cues, they get a couple of rewards and then I release them to go back and play again, go off and play for another 18, 20 seconds, practice the recall again. And so I'm basically managing the energy level of play before it skyrockets and takes on a life of its own. So that's one way to handle that. The other one that I would think about too, especially if I was trying to set everybody up for success might be to say, what if we provided that vocal dog with a bit of extra exercise or an outlet for that energy before the play date? I think we're, we're often using the play date as the energy outlet, but then we're shocked when all of this energy comes screaming out into the world, literally. So what if we did some mental games or some relaxation training, or we went for a couple loops around the block and then went for play time? Would that have an impact on that barking? Maybe yes, maybe no. The dog will tell us if we're on the right track.
1: Yeah. And what about Mr. Fun Police? So like <laughs> Cutie Pie, the dog that, that you know, is like almost like referee in, in play. What, what do you see there and what would you maybe do if anything?
2: Yeah, I, I love those Fun Police dogs. They often have that very characteristic demeanor. They're splitters, they get right in the middle. Everybody is like back to your mats. Like, um, this is done now. So, a couple of things. Number one is if, if everything else about this scenario is totally appropriate, and I've got a dog who might even be a bit stressed by that level of play, I may take more of a management approach and just say, hey, you know what, buddy? Cutie pie, this isn't your jam. I get that. I don't want to hang out with the kids when they're partying at Coachella until four in the morning either. So, you know what? That's fine. I'm just going to put you away or we're going to go off and do something else. And I'm going to manage that situation differently so that I'm not putting cutie pie in the scenario where, there, where there's a problem. The other option is I could absolutely also do what we were talking about with the trigger as the cue. So I might be armed with cutie's you know, primary reinforcer, whatever that yummiest of food treat is. And I'm just hanging out sipping on a lemonade or a beer, whatever. I'm just hanging out. The moment the other dogs start to play and Cutie Pie's eyebrow starts to raise, I call Cutie Pie over, recall, food, 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 well done. And I'm actually teaching Cutie Pie, when you see that play start to happen, come and find me, I'm gonna pay you in snacks. And I'm now teaching a different response to the same trigger. Uh, depending on the level of stress cutie pies is uh, experiencing, it may happen really, really quickly that they learn an alternate behavior or it may take a bit more practice. But those are a couple of options there.
1: That's so helpful. So uh, a last question that I have that, I mean, is sort of more of a story, but I'd love to hear your thoughts on this and see if you've found this to be true in your own life or with some of your clients. But I... With my own dogs, it real. I first noticed it with my pug Willie, where he would, in essence, and it must have just been learned through experience, but he would, in essence, trick the other dogs into dropping their chewy or their food puzzle by pretend barking at the door, and so he would he would rush her. Across like that alert barking but then as soon as the other dog and he, if, if the other dogs didn't follow him that he would do it again and do it even more gusto and then as soon as as in like his whole goal as soon as the other dog joined in and started barking with him they would drop the chewie then he'd circle back as fast he could he'd run and he'd grab that food and then he'd take it and uh and i've actually noticed that with with my dogs now our, our dog nova does it and indiana bones does it and and Otis, he's cute, but he he hasn't quite figured that that one out yet. But have you found that to happen with other dogs too?
2: Absolutely. I, and I, yeah. I love that. I have to say, as an aside, you have the cutest dog names for all those, those critters <laughs> in your family. That's amazing. Like Indiana <laughs> oh, Bones, you're killing you. me here. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but yes, I, I love that. And that actually brings me back around to when we were talking about antecedents and behavior and consequences. That's a great example of a consequence, right? when i bark at the door you abandon the bone now that's available that's amazing so i'm going to reinforce the barking at the door to get to that consequence of having bone access and so my suspicion is that it probably happened the first time almost as a fluke where it was one of those like okay maybe there was something at the door maybe there wasn't but i barked and i ended up with a bone how did how did that happen but i don't know but let's repeat that again uh, and, and we start to get that repetition. And, you, and I would imagine just the way you described it too, it may have started out a bit more sort of rough or crude. And with practice, it gets more and more intentional, more refined, more precision. You might even have the dog who is barking at the window, half-heartedly looking over their shoulder, waiting for the abandonment so they can peel off. And it's amazing to see. I, they're so incredibly smart. I love watching them.
1: Me too. I, I'm like always learning. I think that's the cool thing about what we do is you, it's, it's ongoing. You're always learning new things and discovering new things. And yeah. In, any final thoughts from you on barking?
2: Yeah. You know, I think, you know, just in, in kind of on the heels of that conversation we were just having there, you know, we think about the intelligence and so much that's going on in their worlds that we have no visibility of to me it's a reminder of the relationship that I want to have with the dogs that I live with. If I were to approach that relationship as a I'm the owner, I'm the person because I said so, I'm going to micromanage all of your behavior and you're going to do everything I say because I said so, to me I think we sort of lose some of the some of the joy that is the dog that is the dog human relationship. And so even as we're talking about something as specific as barking, that factors in here, right? Because barking can be a big problem. And I don't mean to undermine or, or or downplay that. Barking can be a really huge stressor and, you know, could even have people evicted from their homes depending on the circumstances. So it, I'm not saying it's just this little, little normal thing that we need to accept, but I think when we when we really lean into who is that dog, what are they trying to communicate? How can we better understand that? Can we meet their needs? Can we channel that in more appropriate ways? we start to develop a dialogue and a conversation rather than turning into the punisher or the corrector or or those things that may actually not be what we were looking for with our relationship in the first place. And Barking is just a place where that all gets highlighted for me.
1: Uh, that's really, really well said. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Pockel. Loved our conversation. I always love getting to hear you speak in your just unique fun way that just makes it just, something I can retain for life, really. So thank you for this. And I would love to have you back again soon.
2: Absolutely. I look forward to that. Thanks for having me on. And yeah, this has been an absolute pleasure today. Thank you.
0: Thank you for joining us for Happy Paws. We hope you continue tuning in every two weeks as we explore more about your pets. Make sure you subscribe to avoid missing out on any of our upcoming Happy Paws episodes. And if you enjoyed this episode, we'd love it if you took a minute and left us a review. For more content like this and much more, visit us at fearfreehappyhomes.com. Our music is by 310. That's the number three, the word one, and the word o. Follow them on Instagram at 310official and listen to them on Spotify or wherever else you find your music.